Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Finance Minister Katina Conroy joins us as we discuss the province's finances in an era of high inflation and interest rates. Plus, the province may have set targets for cities on the housing naughty list, but where will the money come from? And Entertainment Tonight Canada comes to an end after 18 years. We look at how TikTok has changed the coverage of modern Hollywood. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today, Finance Minister Katina Conroy released the province's first quarterly report for the 2023-2024 budget. And boy, hang on to your wallets, it's a doozy. BC's deficit is projected to jump by $2.5 billion to $6.7 billion due to a loss of revenue from natural gas and the cost of fighting uh, summer wildfires, $966 million to be exact. So just under a billion dollars just fighting uh, summer wildfires and the bills aren't uh, completely paid yet. There's more problems coming in at this point and that's all according to the, the uh, province's first quarterly financial update joining me now to discuss the issue is katrina conroy bc's minister of finance minister thank you for speaking to us today well it's great to be here jeff uh were you expecting the deficit to be as high as it was particularly with the the jump that we're seeing with uh, the extra costs with the uh, wildfires and even uh, revenue from natural gas well you know, Jazz, people are in BC are facing big challenges, and, and the record wildfire season has been significant. And uh, so we thought that uh, it might be a bit higher, so we had, had anticipated that. What we didn't anticipate was the um, lower natural gas uh, prices and revenues going down so substantially. And actually, even the private forecasters didn't uh, didn't forecast that either. They Everybody thought that it was going to go down a bit, but not, I mean, the prices fell more than 50% since, since the budget. Mm-hmm. So that was that was substantial. And moving forward at this point, where, how fast are, uh, do you see the economy growing here? What's the number that we're looking at? Well, one thing with our economy is, is that we have a very diverse economy and, and we've practiced prudent uh, uh, budgeting uh, since we formed government in 2017. And, and by doing that, we, we also have been investing in people and uh, we've had a fairly significantly strong economy. And in fact, uh, we invested in people during COVID, and we had one of the strongest economies in, in Canada. And we came out of COVID with a strong economy. So, I mean, I'm feeling uh, fairly, like I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, we will continue to have a good, strong economy because of, of our, our past practices and how we're moving forward. But it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's BC and things can fluctuate, but I'm feeling very confident. But, but I want to confirm here, just in regards to growth, though, there is a one, the, the growth of the economy would go from 1.5% to 0.8% or just under 1% for 2024? Mm-hmm. Is, is mm-hmm. that, that's what I mean, well, so that's accurate? That, I mean, that's the projection so far? That's the projection, and and we know that we're gonna the economy is gonna slow down a bit in 2024 because we're gonna start to see the effects of the uh, high interest rates. I mean that will come uh, in, in that will be in in 2024, and the thing and things like uh, the lower natural gases and uh, gas costs. So we we know that that's coming, and so we know that there, there will be a bit of a slowdown in in 2024. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm yeah, it's but. We're not going to make cuts. We're, we're going to continue to provide supports to people because we know that's the right thing to do. So to confirm, as you said, you're not going to cut costs anywhere or even raise taxes anywhere. It's the status quo, and right now 
because the global economy uh, and obviously the impacts it can have on an open economy like ours, the, the deficit most likely at this point you see it around $6.7 billion for the full year. That's right. And it, I mean, it's, it's Q1. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. first quarter. So, you know, we'll see how things are in the, in the second quarter. We'll see if the, you know, we, we might have better outcomes when it comes to income tax and, and potentially more revenues from resources. But as I said, we can, even you forecast prudently, it, it, uh, it, it benefits you. And absolutely. And just to confirm though, and you, you have about f- uh, $5 billion in contingency as well? Yes, we do. Yeah, All right. 5.5 billion in contingencies, which is, is it, you know, right now it's Q1, so we we won't look at spending that right now because we want to make sure that we have that contingency in, in as we, as the year progresses. I mean, we're early in the year, mm-hmm. and we want to make sure that, and especially when things like caseloads, if, if they go up, we have to make sure we can cover that. So it's always good to have those uh, contingencies uh, as part of a, a prudent budget. In regards to uh, housing, which can play a significant role in revenue for government as well, uh, so far, what do you see over the next uh, few months for, for in regards to revenue for government? Well, we, we continue to um, be prudent with our forecasting on, on housing. Um, housing is, has been affected by... Um, the labor shortages and, and supply chain issues, but we're determined to keep uh, building the houses that, that people in BC need with our Homes for BC plan. It's a $7 billion plan, and we're looking at ensuring that we're working with, uh, with municipalities, with Indigenous nations, with, you know, in partnership and the federal government, because we're actually making the largest investment in housing in, in, our, in our province's history. And we, we need to deliver those those houses to people because everybody deserves to, to find a place to own or, or rent in, in our province, and we want to make sure that they can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in regards to just revenue for government, uh, when it coming from the housing from the housing sector, you don't expect any dramatic increases or anything like that. It's it's sort of status quo. The market itself is going through significant challenges because of interest rate hikes and. Uh, and and the Bank of Canada's uh, present policy, you don't see any yeah. sort of dramatic increase in revenue for government from housing. Well, we actually had a fifteen point five fifteen percent increase in housing starts this year mm-hmm. already, which is is quite significant. Um, we thought it might be going down a bit just because of of interest rates and and the fact they have been going up. We were very happy that the Bank of Canada didn't raise them in September, but um, so. This, you know, it, 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 it's cyclical, but at the same time, it's, um, you know, we, we, as I say, we plan prudently and then we are, you know, can be pleasantly surprised when things go better than we plan. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that's quite interesting is the uh, $900 million plus for forest uh, fires, uh, the cost of the province, $966 million to be exact. Now, uh, I'm of a certain vintage, and I recall um, many years ago from the Kelowna fire, I think that was a very, uh, obviously, very expensive year for the for finance. Uh, and I think it was $400 million or so, maybe just under a billion, half a billion dollars, and now we're here we are at a billion dollars dealing with the wildfires for a very busy wildfire season. Moving forward, not just your time as finance minister, but perhaps even longer than that, five years, ten years down the road, um, is, is, is wildfire season going to have to be looked at differently when it comes to budgeting? Yeah, it is. 
Yeah, definitely, Jazz. And, and, you know, and we are looking at it differently. And last year we brought in funding for the BC Wildfire Service so that they have annual funding, year-round funding, so they can hire people year-round. Mm-hmm. So those people that they fight the fires during the summer and during the wildfire season, which is getting longer, it's coming a little earlier in the year and lasting longer, but they can also do wildfire mitigation with our partners in municipal governments, First Nations, you know, making sure that, I mean, who better, Jazz, to do wildfire mitigation than the people who actually fight the fires and understand fires. Mm-hmm. So we are looking at what we can do with, in collaboration with communities, and the Premier just announced some funding at the at UBCM to, to help uh, uh, communities to, to buy the equipment they need and, and uh, do training. Um, and because I, I, I've been, when I was Minister of Forest, and I've been around, and even this year I went to some of the camps, and, and you see those, um, it's not just the people from the BC Wildfire Service who do an amazing job, but it's also the uh, firefighters from different uh, communities that are, they take their equipment and their folks and they go and help fight the wildfires, which is pretty incredible. It's it's an all-hands-on um, experience when you look at what people are doing to help fight the fires in this province. And mm-hmm. so we need to make sure that we have the support for communities to do that, but also the training and, and quite frankly, Jaws, you know, the, um, the responsibility of, of, of being uh, pr- uh, proactive about fighting air of wildfires is, is it's everybody's responsibility. It's not just a provincial government it's, or federal government or municipalities. It's individuals as well. And there's so many things we can all do as individuals, especially those of us that live in rural BC, mm-hmm. to make sure that we do the mitigation around our own home. You know, it's tough when you got to cut a tree down, but when it's so close to your house and, and a terrible fire hazard, you got to do it. And mm-hmm. there's things that you can do to, to prevent that. And so we're talking to people about how we can all work together. And people want to, you know, they want to do some training to make sure that they can help fight the fires. And because you can't just send people without training because that's, I mean, you need to have the training. You need to have the understanding of, of the fires because you don't, the last thing you want to do is, is, then people that don't know what they're doing. And, I mean, even professionals that know what they're doing have still lost their lives this year. Which yeah. Is, which is it, uh, the reason, I was, the yeah. reason I was asking was that it is increasingly becoming a much bigger line item for the finance, for a finance minister because you can set aside $100 million, but you can have a bad year like this year, this past year. You got, there's a billion dollars there. So not only just mm-hmm. on the preventative side, just on the financial side, I think I would think most finance ministers moving forward are going to have to look at that line item in a much different way. Well, we are. We are. We're looking like, what do we need? What? Do, but you also, you know, you, you hope for the the years that uh, where you don't have to spend that much, and you mm-hmm. don't want to have that money going into a, a budget item if there's not flexibility to move it. So, you want to make sure that we have enough funding, and that's what contingencies are for. Minister, uh, thank you for chatting with us today. I look forward to having you on the show soon again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jess. I, I'd love to come on the show again. <laughs> We, we promise we'll have you on. Many more financial okay. updates in the future, that's for sure, especially these okay. days. All right, take care. A few more. Next, one, next one's in November. All right. We'll jot it down. Thanks a lot. Okay, thanks, Jess. Take care. Let's talk to our contributor, Jerry Mayor Judson, who joins us now. We're going to talk about birth rates, and specifically BC's birth rate. Yes, we are, and it's... Uh, it's just like birth rates globally. BC's birth rate is declining. It is even less than uh, the Canadian birth rate. We are, yeah, really? we're having less babies on average than the rest of Canada. So uh, the rate is like, I believe it's expressed per 
mother per woman, is it? Or is mm-hmm. it per family? But it's 1.21 children, whereas the Canadian average is 1.41. Really? Yeah. So uh, to my understanding, 2.1 is, is a statistical number, but the number to actually keep your uh, population at the level you're yeah, at. Yeah, it's like the replacement so, number so or whatever. That's a, yeah. You sustain your population 2.1. We're at 1.21. 1. 1.2. That is, uh, I, I mean, there's got to be a bunch of factors. that was announced today? Yes. Um, there's got to be a bunch of factors that it has to do with, though, because I think it speaks to maybe affordability, where the affordability crisis here specifically, because it might just take longer in life for you to get to that point where you feel like you could raise a child or, you know, mm-hmm. there's movements like the child-free movement, which yeah. is, yeah, the world is awful and the world is, I mean, not the world is awful, but like climate wise, it's not, the world is expensive and, um, the environment, we don't want to contribute to more, you know, a bigger carbon footprint of a whole human being. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of factors that go into into that. And that's like Japanese level. Yeah. The Japanese have a very low level. In fact, I was Mm -hmm. looking, I think it's about 1.34. So we're below Japan. Below Japan. Level. uh, China is 1.28. Uh, which okay, is just, so just very babies. low. Yeah, uh, U.S. is 1.64. So okay. all of them, by the way, below the replacement level. Yeah. Uh, and I said China, like I said, uh, 1.28. And one of it is part of it is first uh, the the only child policy. Mm-hmm. But it's just as you know, having lived and worked in Asia, I can tell you, as economies grow, people do better economically. They eat better. They live better. Uh, they generally have less kids. Yeah. Uh, I remember an old stat years ago when the British left India. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were averaging uh, six kids per family. Six kids per family. In 1980, it went to four kids for, per family. And right okay. now it's about two. Okay. Right? The challenge in India is popu- it's the most populous country in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the average age in India is about 28. That's a very young population. Yeah, 40% of the population's 25 years or younger. Yeah, so, really? So even if you have a, a, a you're at two, uh, the level they're at, yeah. they're at a childbearing age. So you yes. can't, it, so stats tell you numbers are tell you they're going to be doing they're still going to be growing yes for another 20 years or so so they're heading in the right direction it's probably four or five states that that would probably contribute to a lot of that but when our core problem here is we're we're complaining about costs of living too many immigrants too many international students but without them there is but we're also not having babies so what's our our economy is also dependent on people healthcare costs as i keep saying never go down and yeah. I don't care what government's in power. Nobody cuts health care. No. And that eats 40, 41 cents out of every dollar you pay in tax goes to mm-hmm. health care. And, and you add population. post-secondary education, uh, primary education, 65 cents of every dollar, roughly 60 to 65 <sighs> cents is just health care and education. Yeah. So if somebody can find a magic way, a magical way for us to keep paying for all this and the increases without immigration <laughs> or even reduced immigration, let me know. So, you know, you can get mad at Justin Trudeau and they may tweak things because they have to. And I think there's some mm. relevant questions on this many international students coming mm. here. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, let's say, Pierre Polyev comes in, he'll tweak it. He'll change a few things. But broadly speaking, it's not going to be that much different. Yeah, we do. We do. I mean, unless everyone decides to have two babies, we need to... Uh, no, who's going to... <laughs> <laughs> part of it is part of it's not even just cost. Part of it is just uh, you know lifestyle. Now we're not a, we yes. don't live in an agrarian society. You don't need four kids, and they're all like if you have children, they are likely going to live past childhood now because of the way that we've handled disease and things like that. It's just not it's just different. But what I did find as well with an interesting statistic, along with this declining birth rate, is that moms are giving birth at older ages now. Yes. Yeah, so we're seeing a lot less. Um, which I mean. 
maybe thankfully less less birds from ages I think 15 to 19 yeah. and then uh, yeah people in their mid 30s even early 40s are, are having more kids than uh, previous that's which is the, good. I mean that's a challenge it, when it, when our, our whole system has been built around men and I can tell you this mm-hmm. being in government before is that you know women are expected to work and contribute to the economy and career but so many of them sometimes stay too long where they do want to have children as well yeah and so you're having you know significant challenges when you have issues of IVF and that's true. IVF. One of the things I pushed for when I was in, in uh, even in the opposition was I believe what, we, what Ontario does is that uh, here in Canada, we have very strict IVF rules, which is important. You don't yes. want that octomom stuff happening like they do in the years with six, yes, seven kids. But it's expensive, right? It's expensive to and do I, IVF. And one of the things I tried to do behind the scenes is let's offer one cycle of IVF to young couples that are starting later and aren't able to have children. It's $8,000, nice. eight to $10,000, right? <gasps> it took a while just to get it on the BC Liberal policy book. It did yeah. finally. I was advocating for it. And I said, look, I understand you can't have unlimited uh, cost for government. Yes. But cap it. And say, we're going to set aside $75 million a year mm-hmm. so we can provide IVF to young couples so they're going to get one cycle paid for. That's really now, good. Yeah. Now, it may not work for some. They have still have to yes, pay it later all, on. It's, yeah, often and a there may be a waiting cycle list. thing. Yeah. A, in Ontario, there are waiting lists, right? Because yeah. there's demand. But I said, it's not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And we've got to start building government around a much different society today totally. than what we built it, right? Yeah, than the systems in place. So Absolutely. If, if you want to have, if you want British Columbians to have more kids, yep. then start thinking like that. Yes. Start think, thinking about daycare in a way that it's affordable, right? right? Or stable housing yeah. in an accessible and, and way. And I think we're making that societal shift. Oh, yeah. But I tell you, even when I was pushing for uh, IVF, I had some folks come up to me, well, what would this religion think about this uh, for, for this issue? You know, uh-huh. certain faiths feel this way. I right. said, I don't care. Like <laughs> it doesn't it's, matter. It's, it's not about religion. Yeah, you're going to offend some people who may be very religious, but that's for them to deal with. Our yeah. job, we're, we're, we, it can't we're always happen in vivo. Like we it, live in a secular society. With Our science. decisions, yeah, based on science and based on a, a taxpayers to afford this. Stuff, Absolutely. Right? And so I think we're just getting around this issue. The daycare issue is an even a bigger one. Oh, yeah. And so we're getting there with that $10 a day daycare slowly. But this is how we got to think, right? Mm-hmm. So we start but globally, to have babies. I'll give you, my family is an example. Uh, my dad was born in the late 40s mm-hmm. uh, in India. Uh, he uh, and my mom as well. My mom was the uh, youngest of eight kids. Youngest of eight. Youngest of eight. I was born in India. I was the oldest of three. Three. Now I'm the dad of one. <laughs> so you can see. <laughs> the declining birth rate generationally. Eight, yeah, eight, yeah. Three to one. Why? Because we're living better, different priorities, societal changes. But you can see that, right? Absolutely. So, you know, either decide you're going to have one and be happy with that, which I think most <laughs> folks are, or not have any kids, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and having a three kids today is pretty rare for, for most families. Oh, totally. Right? So I, I, I covered so much of this in Asia. I get really excited about it because I think it's important. <laughs> but I think the world is actually headed in a better place. Less yeah. human beings means less impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. But if you're gonna, but you got to encourage families and uh, to, if they want, if you want them to have kids. Make it economically worthwhile totally. as well, right? Totally. You've got to help, especially on the daycare stuff, even on IVF. If you want to help women, particularly because they, it's not fair for them to work in their careers, to build their careers, and then all of a sudden they got to walk away. In some cases, they start having children late in life, and that's yep. why they have to rely on IVF for a variety of reasons as mm-hmm. well, other reasons as well. But that's what you got to. That's how you got to think. Totally. This is not but, very exciting radio because we're not arguing about anything. But no, I'm like, yes, true. <laughs> but it's like one point two one is low. That's very low. That's a very low. So birth call rate. me. Call us on the buzz line, do you think we need to do what other societies do, which is to provide, um, you know, financial 
financial incentives and help to have kids. Other countries do this. Mm. Scandinavian countries. Yes. You know, Russia does this. No and way. Many, yeah, they, 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 they'll pay you to have kids. No way. Yes, you'll get a subsidy. So give me a call on the buzz line. Do you think we should head in that direction? 1.21 kids? 1.21 kids. That is really low. I mean, that's about as low as I've, I've heard. So yeah. give us a call on the buzz line, 604-331-2899. That's 604-331-2899. Or email me, jazz, at cknw.com. Uh, Jerry, thank you. Thank you. Well, we'll talk again because we've got other issues to talk about later in the show as well. <laughs> near yes, we do. Yes, go. we do. Mine as well. There you go. You may recall yesterday we had Housing Minister Ravi Kilo on the show. Uh, he had just announced that 10 municipalities, which were handpicked by the province, were expected to meet housing targets. And if they meet those targets, there would be 60,000 additional housing units uh, built in our province over the next five years. Half of those, by the way, just under half, was the city of Vancouver. There are 10 municipalities on the so-called uh, naughty list, uh, including Vancouver, but Zabbotsford, there was Delta, including um, West Vancouver. They are expected to hit 1,432 new housing units to be built. And those housing units uh, include one, two, and three bedroom units. Uh, and uh, some have said that there will be below market rental units as well in support of housing potentially as well. Now, uh, is that... Uh, number one, first of all, for these communities, are those numbers achievable? Well, joining me to talk a little bit about yesterday's housing announcement is Mark Sager. He's the mayor of the District of West Vancouver. Uh, mayor Sager, thank you for joining us today. Jess, it's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. So, so first of all, are these number, numbers for you, 1,432, are they achievable for the city of, or the District of, of West Vancouver? Yes, they are. Uh, we are. We have a number of different initiatives underway right now, and uh, we're confident that those objectives are very realistic for us. Uh, why do you think you ended up on the list? <laughs> well, <laughs> now that's a good question, my friend. And I'm not trying to corner you. There's oh, nine other there communities we on Well, that you list. know, we love the attention, and uh, it's it's nice to be included with uh, our esteemed uh, colleagues in these other fine municipalities and cities. Uh, I am... Um, I'm really hoping that the province recognizes that by accepting uh, this growth, we mm-hmm. we do need provincial and federal assistance and on issues that are really important to our community. And I and it was interesting in your in the news hour that just preceded mm-hmm. this, the announcement of funding for hospitals uh, in more rural communities, which certainly is needed. But I've got to tell you, on the North Shore, uh, without some serious help on our transportation issues, mm-hmm. we, we're going to need an urgent care center in the western part of West Vancouver. Uh, the traffic on the upper levels highway leaving uh, North Vancouver backs up as early as 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and good luck if you have to get to the Lionsgate Hospital. Yep, no, so, I, don't, I don't doubt uh, your transportation health health challenges. They end up on the news uh, uh, a, lot. In, a lot, especially yes. in the afternoon drive. Uh, but getting back to the housing, just for a moment here, you say you need more dollars. What do you mean by that? I mean, you're going to be approving housing, some of it rental housing. What do you need from the provincial and federal governments? Well, we need, we need some, we're going to need help with uh, addressing serious transportation issues, and, and we all know that the second narrows bridge leaving north vancouver and heading into vancouver is at capacity and we that has to be redesigned it needs attention now we need to get some form of rapid transit uh, across on at least into north vancouver to alleviate the the issues and so if these housing targets give us a platform to say listen Mm -hmm. you know this is all fine and well but we've got whistler and we've got squamish growing rapidly 
uh, Squamish is really growing rapidly. We need transportation to those people. They all go through West Vancouver on their way to wherever they're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, this naughty list, um, does it give you and your council cover from the NIMBYs, from the well-organized housing associations that sometimes uh, oppose these um, rental projects, these condominium projects, townhome projects? Does this give you the cover to say, um, excuse uh, me, we're on this list, we've got to make sure we do better, and we're not going to oppose everything every single time you or your organization is always out saying, no, we shouldn't build it? Well, you know, honestly, in West Vancouver, I, I know people like to say, oh, there's a lot of NIMBYs here. I don't think that's really true or fair. I mean, the council is always going to be interested and concerned on how we ensure any new development that comes into our community integrates well and is respectful of the existing neighborhoods. Um, I, I don't see it as a, as a real issue. I, you know, if you look at our uh, Ambleside local area plan that's underway right now, it's getting really strong support from mm-hmm. all quarters. Uh, so I, I just don't see that as an issue, honestly. In regards to those 1,400 uh, plus target for your community, is that predominantly going to be uh, townhomes and condominiums uh, and less so well, single family uh, homes? There's rental. We're not going to see too much further single family development in West Vancouver. Our, you know, our, our big and probably the most important issue that um, our current council will deal with in its term is the Cypress Village, a transfer of land proposed that has been in discussions, gosh, almost since version one of me when I was mayor about 30 years ago, and that is protecting the uh, a, a huge swath of land above the upper levels highway by transferring density over Eagle Ridge mm-hmm. to allow for a village more centralized and more compact. Uh, that one project will more than address the the whole issue here mm-hmm. and uh, and it also can create a huge beautiful new 600 acre park uh, in perpetuity for for everyone to enjoy in, in metro vancouver what do you make of this uh, announcement yesterday it doesn't concern your community but i just found it fascinating with the federal housing ministry here uh you know they got their four billion dollar housing accelerator fund and uh you know the they're, they, they're wanting to spend that money. They're wanting to cut ribbons. And all of a sudden, there's a tweet saying, we're going to postpone this announcement uh, because of these well, development cost charges. Uh, yeah, I just heard about this a couple hours ago from my colleagues who went to Ottawa. And I've got to tell you, that was really disappointing. Um, all levels of government have to appreciate that new development must pay for the for the costs of, of building, you know, the the infrastructure costs that are required to support it. Mm-hmm. And so the suggestion that new development won't pay for our majors, you know, or won't contribute towards uh, enhancements for our sewer and water systems and things like that, well, that's not on. Uh, I mean, And I want to confirm, if you can for me, I mean, this taxation system, whatever you wish to call it, the development cost charges, you're trying to get uh, taxation or a part of taxation moved away from cash-strapped residents and move more of it to, onto developers. Not all of it, but some of it, right? Well, I mean, yes, that's there's, right. There's, I mean, a nobil- just, I'm just, there's a nobility to what you're doing, is what I'm trying to say. It's not like a cash grab. You're just trying to move some of the uh, the, 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 the heavy lifting that taxpayers have in regards to their, you don't want their property taxes to go up uh, in a significant way. You're trying to move some of those onto developers, and that's, that's part of this challenge at this point. Yes, I mean, it, it has to be fair to everybody. If, if it's fair... It will be supported. I mean, I, I genuinely believe that most people are fair, and 
you know, new development has to contribute something mm-hmm. uh, towards um, the cost of providing services to it. So, look, you've got to hit the 1,400 uh, housing mark. Uh, you know, big cities like Surrey and Vancouver are significantly higher numbers. Do you think yeah. that's what they should be focusing on? I mean, look, you're absolutely right. You need more healthcare spending in, in, in the, on the North Shore, uh, more spending on transportation, especially bridges, but even highways. You're growing very quickly, as is all of Metro Vancouver. But at the same time, we can't stop building housing but do you think the focus should be on the bigger communities and you know stay away from the west fans of the world and some of these other communities uh, I, I mean every community should be doing something I, I mean i do wonder whether they the province is focusing enough attention on how we can grow the communities let's just take for example comox or campbell river or seashelt other beautiful beautiful communities around the province that um, would probably like to see their growth happen. Mm-hmm. I'm just very curious. Uh, not all communities have secondary suites, but this fall legislation that's expected at the, from the provincial legislature, they're going to legalize secondary suites. I mean, I we understand already do in West Van. You do so that and that is. Houses. And do you think there's going to be any cultural pushback in any way? And I'm not just saying it's a West Van thing. I think there's a lot of neighborhoods where they're not used to the secondary suites add in secondary suites, you know, add significantly more cars and neighborhoods. I mean, there seems to me it's a bit of a ticking time bomb in regards to pushback and uh, in regards to the the character of neighborhoods. Yes, but the, I mean, the reality is they've been, they're permitted in West Vancouver. The uptake is, is, is pretty slow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I'd love to see happen is, is encouragement and incentives to, um, to see people rent out homes that are are sitting empty. I mean, we've got we could house a lot more people just in 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 that area alone. Hmm. That's very interesting. We'll talk about that another day. I really appreciate your time today, uh, Mir Sager. Great to be with you, and all the best. Thank all you right. so much. Let's uh, catch up with a developing story. Global News uh, has obtained a memo. Uh, that has been sent to healthcare providers today in regards to masking. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this memo uh, is uh, Global BC legislative reporter Richard Zussman. Hello, Richard. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. Walk me through what did you learn today in regards to this memo? I never like to spoil what Minister Adrian Dix is getting ready to announce. Oh, but you enjoy tomorrow- it. Uh, So he'll announce tomorrow alongside Dr. Bonnie Henry that uh, starting October 4th, uh, masks will be required once again in healthcare facilities across British Columbia. We will get the details tomorrow in terms of what enforcement will look like on this, Mm -hmm. how it will be described in terms of a mandate. But it is clear the province is worried about the upcoming respiratory illness season. So this will be a requirement in all healthcare facilities hospitals to family doctor's offices where there will not be a mask requirement is in long-term care and assisted with those care facilities there also will be the return of those ambassadors so anyone who visited the healthcare system from the beginning of 2020 right up until uh, last year they would have seen uh, or i guess earlier this year they would have seen ambassadors at the front uh, greeting people and providing them with a mask they also are doing a pre-screen in terms of checking with people to see if they have 
uh, any symptoms uh, for any respiratory illness. So they will be returning uh, into the system as well. And the memo also includes language around uh, the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. So that mandate will remain. Uh, when I spoke to Health Minister Adrian Dix last week uh, for a story about the mandates, he alluded to these things coming, but the mandate will continue in the healthcare system. There will not be a requirement uh, for patients or visitors in healthcare uh, to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Um, in regards to the first issue, in regards to this memo itself, so this is new data that the health minister, the provincial health officer, have been looking at, and it, it concerns them enough to say, let, let's bring masks uh, uh, in healthcare settings back. Yeah, so we're going to get a full briefing tomorrow about okay. what the province is seeing in terms of COVID-19, the flu, respiratory illnesses. And we are expecting to see uh, increases in the spread of this virus. They are very worried about our fragile healthcare system. Uh, and if we see, like we did last year, huge number of healthcare workers sick with COVID-19, it's going to put more pressure on a system that is already frail. So we're going to get that data. We're also going to get additional information about what vaccine is going to look like in the fall uh, when British Columbians should expect to be eligible for a COVID-19 booster and a flu shot mm -hmm. uh, and how the province will be prioritizing different demographics in terms of getting them that shot. Uh, anecdotally, I can, and Chris Gales and I were talking earlier in the show, you know, just around this office and among family, friends, you're seeing a lot more uh, COVID-related sickness or just respiratory flus, all that sort of thing. So it, it is around, and anecdotally, certainly I see it. In regards to your comments about um, uh, mandates for healthcare workers, I know the BC United and the BC Conservatives have been ad advocating for getting these people back to work. But at this point, as you say, that you don't see anything changing uh, in the near future. No, it was very clear. We did a story last week uh, out of UBCM. Uh, municipal leaders there voted on a motion that someone put forward calling for these mandates to end uh, in British Columbia. It was defeated by the members. And at the time, uh, Minister Dix told me, uh, we have no consideration of changing this at all. Uh, we'll get details tomorrow from Dr. Henry. One thing that people point out is that mandate is two shots. There will be a lot of healthcare workers on our system who received their second shot two years ago. And we know based on the studies into vaccine, at this point with the way that COVID has evolved, that vaccine likely is ineffective. So the question is, will Dr. Henry mandate healthcare workers to receive an updated booster as part of their requirement for employment? Uh, that's going to be an interesting part of the press conference tomorrow is to, to hear the nuance around whether we're going to see updates to the way that this mandate works. BC is the only jurisdiction in Canada with this mandate. And there seems to be a sense of pride about that from Health Minister Adrian Dix. Hmm. All right. Well, I'm just I'm going to change subject. Uh, we were going to talk about the, the the finance minister. She was on the program at three o'clock. Talk a little bit about the deficit now, six point seven billion projected for 2023-2024. A, a huge jump of two and a half billion dollars because of a loss of revenue from natural gas, a bigger dip than they expected, and of course fighting uh, summer wildfires, which is about a billion dollars uh, as well. Now it should be noted. And I did note with the interview, there's a $5.5 billion contingency there. Um, what I found interesting, and it wasn't really, you know, pushed too much by the minister, is that, you know, growth was expected to be at 1.5% for our economy. It's actually been downgraded to 0.8%. That tells you the yep. next year is going to be very, very challenging. Yeah, anything under 1% is highly concerning, obviously. BC 
has uh, for much of the last little while here led Canada in terms of economic growth. Uh, and the fact that that seems to be slowing uh, is problematic for the economy. Uh, we continue to see huge population growth. It was fascinating yesterday. Uh, Ravi Kalon said that over the last two years, we've seen an addition of 250,000 British Columbians. We knew that latest number, 100,000 a year ago. I was surprised to note that it was 150,000 this last year. So population growth, uh, that puts money back into the economy. But... Uh, there are some underlying worries about, you know, employment numbers, which have been really strong. Those may be receding a little bit. The province is struggling to hit its even its own targets around housing starts. That's problematic as that crisis uh, is obviously impacted by huge population growth. So, you know, the economy is good, but... You know, we have to be worried with those deficit numbers. And the other thing, Jazz, when you look at this, and I asked the minister this earlier too, I'm sure you did as well. So when you see deficit numbers like this, what's going to give, right? Like at what point are we going to see new taxes or at what point are we going to see a reduction in spending and a cutting in programs? For now, the province says none of that's coming. They seem comfortable running these big deficits, especially with those contingency funds. But at some point, something has to give, and and it's that that we're going to have to watch very closely. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not just to this year. It's our COVID spending, particularly at the federal level. Uh, I've always said that there's a fiscal reckoning coming. You can't just keep continue at this level. Yes, we have a $5.5 billion contingency. Um, that's still a deficit at the end of the day. And like I said, when you're go- going from 1.5% growth uh, to 08 that tells you forestry ain't going anywhere. Natural gas prices are going nowhere. And and housing, and remember, we have a significant real estate industry here, from developers to selling homes to to home decorators to plumbers to electricians. I mean, when it when we're not growing and the real estate isn't doing well, that impacts especially Metro Vancouver in a significant, significant way. Uh, and so it, there's a muddle there economically where we're not really going anywhere. And, and yes, it's maybe rising interest rates and things will turn around, hopefully by the first or second quarter of 2024 but this year is going to be significantly challenging not only just at the federal and provincial levels but at its core it's going to impact taxpayers and it's a tough struggle for everybody out there that's for sure richard uh thank you for your time look forward to chatting with you very soon can't wait thanks Jess. Let's revisit uh, our housing story. We spoke to West Vancouver uh, District Mayor uh, Mark Sager uh, at 4 o'clock. Uh, his community is one of 10 municipalities that were handpicked by the province to increase housing starts. Uh, West Vancouver District has to make about uh, 1,432 uh, new housing uh, units by 2028. It's a five years that the provincial government gives them now. Of the 60,000 that the, the province has need to be built uh, within the next five years, half of them, just under half, are from Vancouver. Uh, And it's an interesting list because you've got big cities like Vancouver, uh, but there's no Surrey, which is the second largest municipality in uh, in the province, no Burnaby, uh, third largest, uh, no uh, Richmond, the fourth largest. Uh, You do have Victoria there and Delta and Abbotsford, fast-growing communities as well, Uh, Saanich as well. But uh, is this the right way to go, Uh, uh, especially uh, because there's so many small ones as well? Oak Bay (laughs) on Vancouver Island is expected to build 664 housing units within the next five years. So uh, not a lot. Uh, Joining me now to talk a little bit about the list and, and whether or not this is the right way to go in regards to a housing naughty list is Andy Yan. He's an urban planner and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Andy, thank you for joining us. 
Good afternoon, Jazz. Good afternoon. First of all, your thoughts overall, this housing naughty list and, and the, the targets that have now given to these communities to build 60,000 additional housing units over the next five years. Well, I think the first thing is that it's certainly ambitious. I think that there are some details that are, I think, show a, a certain amount of thoughtfulness in the in the numbers of of units that are being expected that to occur in these municipalities and in challenging. I think that this that some of these numbers are going to be very challenging, particularly in this kind of uh, interest rate environment. That uh, really, uh, how will these uh, municipalities uh, produce these numbers when it's not the municipalities that have any control over things like interest rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you um, think this list is a good list? And and, and I'm not talking about Vancouver, but mm-hmm. is Oak Bay a priority? Even West Van with you know 1,400 housing units, Oak Bay at 664, Port Moody mm-hmm. 1,694. Mm-hmm. Is that where the priority should be in your mind? Well, it's an interesting question because of really what it means to say comparing to what they've done in the last five years. And you'll actually find that in certain cases, um, it's it's actually uh, if, if, if certain municipalities are able to kind of keep in pace to what they've done in the last five years, there isn't going to be that much of a challenge towards the production of raw numbers. But I think at the same time, the when you talk about Oak Bay, uh, Oak Bay is interesting because um, so little has actually occurred over the last <laughs> five years. Um, you actually find that it's going to have to somehow uh, produce an additional 133 units per year over the next five years when over the previous five years it produced 39. So basically, Oak Bay needs to step it up by 239% in terms of their housing production. And I think that it's really, I think, an uh, issue towards where. And I think that what, what, you, what you touched upon is a really important point, is that it's not only about Vancouver, but about Metro Vancouver. How, do the, how does the entire region take upon challenges like supportive housing, like rental, and like, how, and, and like units that, are, that have three or more bedrooms? So I think that you really touched upon a really important point. Is The question isn't just how many, but where. Mm-hmm. Uh- the issue uh, in regards to um, just some of these cities do have, and, I, and I've covered, I was a city hall reporter for a lot of years, and mm-hmm. you get really, you know, people care about their communities and they're out and about challenging, questioning, pushing, prodding on a variety of issues that uh, will change the character of a neighborhood potentially. But you get so mm-hmm. many of these groups, associations, neighborhood alliances. Uh, some would argue that this list in some way gives uh, these city councillors and mayors cover to say, you know what, if somebody says no or you got a group of NIMBYs, you can now push back mm-hmm. saying, we're on this list. If we don't build this, the province is going to approve them. So let us build them so at least they can fit into the character uh, of the neighbourhood or somebody in far-off Victoria is going to do it for you. Well, I think it's it's perhaps some cover, but then it's also funding. I think that it's important to acknowledge that the provincial government has actually looked at building capacity within the municipalities when it comes to infrastructure. Now, the issue isn't only about the federal, the, sorry, the provincial government. It's really the federal government. Will the federal government step out? step up in terms of their commitments towards uh, developing housing that is at the right at that is at the sizes through which Canadians want. I think that this is really an ongoing challenge because it's not only just the raw number of houses of, of housing dwelling, you know, dwelling units that people want to live in, but what kind are they? How much are they compared to how much people can earn on local incomes? So I think that this is in one way it does provide cover, but yet at the same time the provincial government also 
also needs to also show um, show up in turn, and, and the federal government needs to show up with funding and supports for the infrastructure behind this housing. Do you think it, the provincial government should have gone further and say we will, let's just say if there's some extra dollars, incentivize people to just build two and three bedroom? Forget the one bedrooms. They're always going to be there. They're efficient. They're easy to build for developers. Let's focus mm-hmm. on two and three bedroom builds, whether it be condos or townhouses, and that should be the focus, the missing middle, and we'll find a way to get those things approved or find funding so that we can accelerate the building of those, and let's not worry about single-family homes or one-bedroom condos. It's always the two- and three-bedrooms. That's all we're going to focus on. That's going to be, again, another kind of big issue because when we talk about the missing middle, it's not necessarily about form, but it's about a population group, that the missing middle of households in incomes that I think have faced profound challenges, ongoing challenges in towards housing, in towards housing growing families. And I think that this is going to be, I think, a key element. I think that there, there was a recent survey um, over by Metro Vancouver that actually found out that uh, a typical resident and immigrant household want two bedrooms, that they on average want to be in, in a three, sorry, a three bedroom mm-hmm. unit. And, and then, and at the same time, the, the market is, uh, is most able to produce studios in one bedrooms with some two bedrooms, but at the same time, very few three bedrooms that aren't, say, a penthouse or a sub penthouse in, in, in these buildings. And I think that this is going to be, I think, something to observe when, uh, with what kinds of supports the provincial government will produce in terms of three bedrooms. Now, to the credit of, the, of, the, of these targets, they do flesh out the need for three bedrooms, that there's a, it's not only, to, again, this raw numbers, but it's also the diversity. So it's one about not numbers, but diversity that I think housing diversity that I think is, is an important, uh, is an important uh, statement in the, in these targets. But at the same time, it's the supports that are going to be key. Now, whether you like it or not, I think we finally have gotten to the point where federal, provincial, and municipal governments uh, are working generally in the right direction, getting housing built, whether through policy, accelerator funds, in this case with the federal government. Some people may not like the specific programs, but at the same time, you realize very quickly there has to be greater coordination. Now, here you have the uh, the housing minister, Sean Fraser, federal housing minister, supposed to come to, to Vancouver, make a big announcement in regards to Burnaby and mm-hmm. Surrey. All of a sudden, he tweets out 10 minutes before the minister of housing here in BC is about to release the, the numbers for the naughty list that, look, guess what? We're going to postpone this announcement uh, because of a proposed development cost charge increase by Metro Vancouver that wipes out yeah. whatever uh, uh, help that the federal government was providing in regarding getting rent built and now there seems to be a war of words between Burnaby and the feds and Surrey, Burnaby and the feds. I mean, it shows you that we still have a lot more to do in regards to coordinating our broader conversation around getting housing built in the region. Right. And you got to remember those development cost charges are in a large part connected towards infrastructure. Um, it's Metro Vancouver that's responsible for our water system, for our water and sewage system. And, you know, water and sewage is a pretty important infrastructure to have for increased growth. And I think that this is really where you can make things like wave off GST off of uh, purpose-built rental. But then at the same time, you still need that infrastructure spend that is occurring at, you know, that requires funding from the federal, provincial and local governments 
um, because the local government just can't carry that type of infrastructure uh, investment uh, without the senior level of government. And I think that this is, you, you touched on a really important point about that type of coordination and, and, and how much work there is still ahead for all levels of government. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Andy, thank you so much. This is a very complex issue, and there's many more times I'm sure we'll be talking on it because uh, I, you can see the focus on the municipal, provincial, and federal level. And I, I think that's great. It's just the greater coordination is, is required and certainly focusing on, as you say, the missing middle and some of these other issues uh, to, to get this thing going as fast as possible uh, for the sake of uh, taxpayers. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.